Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, did you know women represent the fastest growing segment of the U.S. military? And the Wounded Warrior Project is working to address the unique service-related needs and challenges of women warriors, lobbying for additional resources this week on Capitol Hill. Also this morning in our community and business spotlight, downtown Findlay's biggest party of the year happens this Saturday. It's Oktoberfest. Childhood cancer is the worst, but what if you could fight it with a simple post on social media? And remember last season when we were hit with an early outbreak of flu, COVID, and RSV all at once? What's the likelihood of another triple threat this year? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, September 21st, 2023. When was the last time you were truly happy? When was the last time you felt happy? I don't know if this is the kind of story that you really want to start with in the morning or not. I'll let you decide, but this is what it says. A team of international researchers surveyed the lifespans of more than 460,000 people to see if there were any trends in happiness levels. That's what they were looking for. The team found a tendency for children's life satisfaction levels to drop after the age of nine. So up until the age of nine is when we are truly happy in our lives, at least to be at the beginning of our lives. We're, we're truly happy until the age of nine. Then there's a drop until about the age of 16. Between age 16 and up, life satisfaction slowly increases then until the age of 70. And then at 70, once again, satisfaction levels begin to drop. That's interesting. I, I, it's an interesting curve there. Really high until age 9 and then a drop between 9 and 16 and then a gradual increase from that point forward until age 70 and then it begins to drop again. Positive emotional states declined from the age of 9 all the way to the age of 94. Overall... According to the study, and I think this was done in the UK, I could be wrong, but I think this was a study out of the UK, the uh, professor responsible for this survey, Suzanne Buckner, said, uh, overall, the study indicated a positive trend over a wide period of life if we look at life satisfaction and negative emotional states. So, that's kind of interesting. Really uh, thought about, you know, when you're truly happy. Scientifically, I'll tell you when you are truly happy. Uh, some of the other most interesting and buzzworthy stories is something to think about as you get your uh, Thursday morning started here. Uh, some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to start off your uh, morning. This actually may be a bit of a related item. Have you ever heard the saying that? When you're truly in love, it gives you the warm fuzzies all over. Well, it turns out that is true. This is a uh, research study from Alto University, and this I know is in the UK. Um, Experts created body heat maps of 27 different kinds of love. (laughs) 
First of all, did you know there were 27 different kinds of love? But apparently there are. And experts created body heat maps from all of these different types of love. And when you have a truly passionate love, it is true, you feel that all over. Except in the legs. <laughs> of, of all the places, um, your legs don't, uh, there's no... Uh, there's no difference. You don't get the warm fuzzies in your legs with passionate love. A true soulmate type of love, however, is felt all over, including the legs. <laughs> so if you want to know if she's the one, ladies, if you want to know if he's the one, do you feel do you feel the love in your legs? <laughs> That'll tell you whether it's just the heat of the moment, the passion of the moment, or whether it is uh, truly a soulmate kind of forever love. A mother's love for her child was concentrated in the chest. Same thing with a father's love. Those are um, concentrated in the chest, it says. Uh, love of wisdom, love of God, love of one's country. Those were mostly felt in the head, according to the research. Um, the, uh, head researcher of the uh, story, and I don't have his or her name says when we move from more strongly experienced types of love to less strongly experienced types, the sensations in the chest area become weaker love for strangers, love for wisdom that is associated with a cognitive process. Hence the, uh, heat map emphasis on the uh, head and brain area. So, wow. That's more than you ever wanted to know about how you really feel love. <laughs> so now we know how to measure love and happiness. So that's, I think that's a pretty full day right there. And we can start the day with those two things. Man, uh, and that's a, uh, that's a pretty full day. Hey, um... You know, we've got Halloween right around the corner, and um, according to a new study, um, 54% of Americans say that the most iconic horror film villain is Freddy Krueger. The most iconic horror film villain, the one that keeps you up at night, Freddy Krueger. 54% of Americans... Um, and to Freddy Krueger. Uh, Chucky from the Child's Play films uh, got 39% of the vote. 34% selected Ghostface. That's the one from Scream, right? The the long, the elongated, uh, drooping mouth. And yeah, Ghostface, 34. 60% of the 2,000 adults in this poll like spooky movies, eerie movies, horror movies, more than double... That's more than double the amount who prefer movies designed to scare people. That's kind of interesting. Spooky or eerie movies are much preferred to just the slasher films that are designed to shock and scare. Uh, the top family-friendly Halloween films, Casper and Ghostbusters. But not everyone is waiting for approval from mom and dad. 53% of those in the survey saw their first scary movie without Parental permission. So <laughs> that's kind of a rite of passage, I think, uh, is for youth, especially in your uh, late tween, early teen years. 
You see one of those scary movies, you have the nightmares. That's like a rite of passage uh, for kids. Uh, it, it, And that's the way it should be, I think. Um, this is kind of interesting. It's, I don't know if you heard about this. I, I actually saw this story yesterday, and I thought, this is really cool. You're familiar with uh, Bob Ross, right? The uh, curly-haired uh, painter from PBS television, The Joy of Painting, and all of that. During the pandemic, young people rediscovered... I remember when Bob Ross was on TV... And we watched Bob Ross's Joy of Painting in His Happy Little Trees religiously on PBS when it was uh, on originally in first run. During the pandemic, younger people, a lot of younger people rediscovered Bob Ross and the Joy of Painting. And um, he became a viral internet celebrity. But did you know that all of those paintings that Bob Ross did for his show, there were like 400 plus episodes of his show. And... He actually did multiple copies of all of the paintings that he did on the show. He did one to rehearse the show, and then he did one live on the air, and then he did another one. I think there were like three paintings for every uh, show. So it's like more than a thousand Bob Ross paintings out there just from the show alone, not to mention all of the things that he did just you know for fun, um, because that's what he did. But anyway... Um, so there are a lot of Bob Ross paintings in existence, but very few that are actually found in the wild. Uh, most of the paintings are held at the offices of the Bob Ross company that, you know, sells painting supplies and so on, keeping his name alive. Um, but a rare Bob Ross is expected to sell for nearly $10 million. It's up for sale. What makes this one rather unique number one it's up for sale not many bob ross paintings are but this is the very first painting he did for his show uh the joy of painting the very first episode back in 1983 the piece is titled a walk in the woods shows a stone path winding through a serene forest and um it was originally purchased the story says by a PBS volunteer at a benefit auction, and uh, it went originally for like less than a hundred bucks, and now it's up for sale for nearly ten million dollars. That's just an insane amount of money. Uh, basically, the owner says that she's not really sure that she wants to part with it. So it would take ten million dollars to convince her. Basically, so she set this. Uh, pie-in-the-sky number um, that she would not be able to refuse as the selling price, but it may or may not sell ultimately unless it brings that that sky-high price. Bob Ross, the story goes on to say, Bob Ross and his show have enjoyed a resurgence in popularity in recent years, and uh, now millions subscribe to his YouTube page, even though he uh, passed away uh, some years ago. Uh, a walk in the woods, the actual uh, sale price, $9.85 million. So if you have an extra $10 million laying around, burning a hole in your pocket, you could pick up one of the very few original Bob Ross paintings from his TV show, The Joy of, the, uh, the Joy of Painting, and um, it could be yours hanging in your... That would be so cool. That would be so cool to have a Bob Ross original. I mean, you know, forget Picasso and... You know, all of the other uh, Monet, all of the masters. I want a Bob Ross. 
If I won the lottery, I'd buy me a Bob Ross. I'd find me one of those. And <clears throat> Happy little trees. And uh, lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, uh, I saw this and I just couldn't resist. Got to talk about this story. A fish at the San Francisco Aquarium is believed to be the oldest fish under human care in the world. Scientists at the Steinhardt Aquarium, the California Academy of Sciences, say the Australian lungfish named Methuselah is 92 years old, plus or minus eight years. Methuselah came to the museum all the way back in 1938. Scientists recently were able to use DNA from her fin to determine her age. I mean, they knew she was old because they've got records that she came to the museum all the way back in 1938. But now they say she is 92 years old, give or take. Aquarium officials say despite her advanced age, she is very active in her tank. And uh, obviously they expect uh, a few more visitors uh, <laughs> to get a, a, a view of Methuselah. Come visit Methuselah now. 92. I had no idea that fishes could possibly live into their 90s, even in captivity. That's pretty amazing. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Partly to mostly sunny skies today with a high in the low 80s. Partly cloudy tonight, a low in the upper 50s. A Hancock County man learned how long he'll be behind bars for murdering his wife. 67-year-old Brian Zisler was sentenced to 15 years to life in Hancock County Common Police Court. Last week, he pleaded guilty to an amended charge of murder. He was originally indicted on a charge of aggravated murder in November of 2021. Deputies arrived at a residence on Township Road 205 east of Finley and near the reservoirs on November 15, 2021 to find Sherry Zisler dead of multiple gunshot wounds. Hancock County Prosecutor Phil Regal thanks the Sheriff's Office and BCI for their hard work on the case, saying he appreciates their efforts in helping to get justice for Sherry. Get more on this case and the story on our website. Several Ohio school board members are alleging in a lawsuit that a Republican-backed overhaul of how the state oversees K-12 education violates the state constitution. The measure shifts oversight of the education department, including decisions on academic standards and school curricula from the Board of Education to a director appointed by the governor. The lawsuit argues, among other things, that the overhaul strips the board of its responsibilities, gives the governor undue power, and was improperly included in the state budget at the last minute. Tracy Townsend, ONN News. The city of Finley says the city's water supply is safe. This after the city of Finley water treatment plant has had people reporting an earthy odor and taste to the water. The city says be aware that the water is not harmful and no water quality parameters have been exceeded. The city says additional treatment has begun to mitigate the taste and people with questions or concerns can contact the water treatment plant and speak with the lab. Ohio State fans traveling to Indiana for the game against Notre Dame may be out of luck when it comes to finding a place to stay. Many hotels in the area are sold out for the weekend despite increased prices. The Motel 6 in South Bend was offering rooms at nearly $450 a night. If you're still planning to go, there is vacancy at a nearby Holiday Inn. It is now charging $900 a night. The Buckeyes and Fighting Irish kick off at 7.30 Saturday night. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com.
Well, did you know, and this is data according to the U.S. Veterans Affairs uh, Department, the VA, nearly one out of every five veterans by the year 2040 will be women. Women, in fact, represent the fastest growing population in the military and veteran communities. And obviously, the more women we have in the military, the more women wounded warriors we have. The Wounded Warrior Project is recognizing a need to address the unique challenges of women warriors. And joining us this morning, Tracy Farrell, Vice President of Program Partnerships and Operations Vice President of the Wounded Warrior Project, and Danielle Green, uh, spokesperson for Warriors Speak uh, and a Wounded Warrior herself, both uh, veterans. Ladies, thank you both for uh, taking the time this morning. Tracy, let me uh, start with you. Talk about the Women Warriors Initiative and the impetus for creating this. Yeah, good morning, Chris. Thank you. So the Women Warrior Initiative, um, and specifically the report, which was released today, is the consolidation and communication about information that we have called from so much data that we have about women warriors. And in fact, our last survey that we did, we got over 5,000 women respondents. Mm. And then we supplemented that with roundtable discussions across the nation, whether it be in person or virtually, to create this report that has not only the findings, but most importantly, I think, are the recommendations that fall into the categories of either programming that we can do for women warriors research we can do into additional topics or to supplement the information that we provided or changes to legislation or regulations that might approach or address some of the issues that we've seen. So share, if you could, some of the key takeaways from that report, some of the examples of what you're talking about there. Sure. So there are a ton, as you might imagine, but I'm going to focus on three. Okay. Um, one is that military transition. That's the act of going from military service to becoming a veteran. That's not a single point or a single day in an individual's life. It is a process. And one's not fully transitioned until you're ingrained in your community and thriving. And we don't have the systems in place always to ensure that that occurs. So the transition process needs to be enhanced and include ongoing support through the entire uh, the entire network or lifespan of that process. Uh, also, women warriors' financial well-being is notably worse than their male peers, and barriers to employment that, that women experience that we haven't heard so much from men are child care and family responsibilities. But also, there's more with regards to homelessness and even the average bank account is worse off than what we've seen with our male veterans. And then finally is that while the VA has made amazing strides in the past few years with regards to women's health care, it's not across the country as easily as accessible as, as we would like. And so innovative gender-specific services nationwide are still lacking, and we need to find a way to get health care to these women veterans that's accessible and treats what they need. So, Danielle, uh, as a woman veteran yourself, as you hear Tracy lay out some of those uh, key uh, points from uh, this report and the Women Warriors Initiative, what are your thoughts? Have you experienced those challenges personally yourself? Chris, I'm excited about this initiative. I wish this initiative was rolled out 18 years ago when I medically retired from the military, 
Um, so my transition from military to civilian um, was um, a little complex. It was difficult. I had challenges with access to care because I'm also a um, arm amputee as well. So trying to get prosthetics, um, just trying to figure out what worked for me. So I returned to Chicago. There was no networking. There was no systems in place. There was no other warriors to connect with. But I tried to stay in close contact with um, Wounded Warrior Project because they were advocating. They were still looking at us holistically, that social aspect, the mental health, the physical health, and just that connectedness. Um, I had to apply for unemployment because I didn't know what my skill set was. But over time and as people found out warriors, female warriors was coming home, the, the, the program started to improve. So what we're doing this week in D.C. is so important with our, our Women's Warrior Summit with 50 women from all over the country to talk to lawmakers. Um, to me, it's just revolutionary, and we just want to keep the momentum going. So, Tracy, you outline some of the key uh, elements of the report, some of the key takeaways of the report. Now the big question, how... Uh, to tackle those challenges? What is Wounded Warrior Project doing to address those needs? Sure. I I look at it as a two-pronged approach. First is just acknowledging that these problems exist. Acknowledging that there are differences between what we're seeing in our male veterans and our female veterans. Mm -hmm. And then bringing those to Capitol Hill, to the VA, to the public at large, So and, and talking about it. And then the second prong is within Wounded Warrior Project ourselves. We have holistic programming, We both, and we have direct programming. We directly impact thousands of wounded warriors every year. We take a step back every time we get a survey result or we write a report to make sure that we're addressing the needs that we're seeing, not the addressing the needs that were of two years ago, mm-hmm. four years ago. Mm-hmm. So being relevant and being innovative is a key part of Wounded Warrior Project programming. I, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned, you know, taking this to Capitol Hill, uh, speaking with the powers that be, what's the reaction when they find out that, yes, the needs uh, and the concerns and the issues facing women veterans are, in some cases, substantively different than their male counterparts? They surprised, shocked? Uh, is Did they you expect know, it was, that? It was interesting. It was interesting, Chris, because we did this two years ago. We we brought a group of women to Capitol Hill, or maybe it was last year, and the result was legislation. Legislation was passed with regards to Deborah Sampson's act or uh, protecting moms who serve. And so there has been legislation that has come within the past few years due to an acknowledgement mm-hmm. that there are some differences that have to be addressed in that manner in order to ensure that the VA and others are, are taking care of us. Again, uh, Tracy Farrell is Vice President of Program Partnerships and Operations Vice President for the Wounded Warrior Project. Daniel Green, spokeswoman for Warriors Speak and a Wounded Warrior herself. Where do we get more information uh, to support this initiative and the uh, Wounded Warrior Project in general? Chris, listeners can go to woundedwarriorproject.org. That's woundedwarriorproject.org to find out more about this initiative and ways that they can get involved with Wounded Warrior Project. Ladies, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. 
Now, the Good Mornings Community and Business Spotlight. Sarah Sisser is here from the Hancock Historical Museum to talk all things Oktoberfest coming up this Saturday in downtown. As we've mentioned, it is the biggest single day party of the year in downtown Finland. That's right. And we're so proud of that and appreciate the community support of this event over the years. Things get started this Saturday at two o'clock and we are certainly bustling at the museum to get everything ready. We Honestly, we prepare for the better part of a year, but this week well, is always sort of mayhem. I, I was going to say, I mean, Sarah has brought with her this whole big three-ring binder of stuff. <laughs> this is my operations so this binder, is, yes. <laughs> this is a big deal, and uh, it, it's... Because it starts, you know, two o'clock, as you mentioned, goes really through the evening. Uh, that gives you the opportunity to focus on, I mean, you know, families and then kind of segue into the evening with uh, more of the adult stuff. And uh, you've got the game on a big screen. So a lot of things going on. We really have something for everyone. It is certainly a family friendly event. Again, something we're really proud of. This is our largest fundraiser of the year for the Hancock Historical Museum. Um, and a lot of people um, don't realize that we're privately funded. So this kind of a fundraiser is so important for us to be able to um, fund our operations throughout the year and our educational programming. But we want to make sure as it relates to our mission that it is family friendly. And so right. we've taken a lot of time um, to develop that kids area, our kinder plot zone that will um, take place in Dorney Plaza as it does every year. We have several other nonprofit organizations that take part in that and assist us with activities. Um, those go from 2 to 7 p.m. So certainly bring the kids down. We have a wide selection of food. We do have a lot of authentic German food. Um, Then we have some vendors that sort of do something creative for the event. They're not necessarily (laughs) German food vendors, but they'll do something Oktoberfest themed. And then, frankly, we have some things that are just really great food. They don't relate to Oktoberfest much at all, but uh, we love great food. So, again, something for everybody with regards to the food. Um, And then, of course, beer is a big part of an Oktoberfest and this celebration as well. And we have some of the best microbreweries from throughout the state. We spend quite a bit of time working with Finley Brewing Company, which is our official beer of Oktoberfest Finley. They help us to kind of curate um, those microbreweries. And so um, we look forward to having um, several of them. We have 10 total microbreweries participating, as well as several beer distributors that bring in some of that um, German import beer. Speaking of beer, uh, you have a beer stein uh, holding contest, which is not just, you know, this is, we're going big time. <laughs> it is, this. it is. We've arrived as Oktoberfest Finley. But <laughs> so the contests that we have every year are so much fun. They're fun to take part in, fun to watch. Um, there is a little bit of an element of professionalism this year because we are one of the qualifier competitions for the U.S. Steinholding Association. Um, we're a state qualifying competition. See, I so, didn't even know that this. I know was the a things thing, you learn but, when you're planning yeah. an Oktoberfest celebration. <laughs> but again, it's all in fun. But our male champion will have a male and a female champion for the Steinholding Endurance okay. Competition, um, and they will proceed on to the state competition. So, can people like just enter on the fly when yes, they're down there? You can. Um, okay. You can enter now. You can pre-register for these contest on the Oktoberfest website, which is oktoberfestfinley.com. Um, and you can register day of as well. The t- the contest stage and the contest registration booth are going to be at the south end of the festival grounds. So that's essentially at the intersection of Hardin Street and South Main Street. Okay. Um, so proceed there if that's something that you want to do um, early on in the day and we'll get you registered. But again, you can register online. And that OktoberfestFinley.com website has all the information you could want about the event. It's got a schedule of the competitions and the entertainment that we'll have throughout the evening. 
Um, it's got an interactive map, so you can really see how the grounds are laid out as well. Uh, live entertainment and something new this year because it's a Saturday during football season. That's right. You've got, and there's a big game on Saturday, Ohio State-Notre Dame on the giant screen. That's right. We couldn't ignore that. We know we have a lot of Ohio State and Notre Dame fans in the area. Um, and so we're just encouraging everybody, bring your watch parties down to Oktoberfest sure. Finley. It's um, I hate to say this, knock on wood, but it looks like the weather is going to be nice. <laughs> um, and so we'll have the, the game um, screen starting at 730 when kickoff um, goes down. And that will be on a 17 foot jumbotron, essentially, at uh, Hardin Street in South Main as well. Um, so we've got we've got the beer. Bring your friends down for the watch the party. Beer, the Enjoy food. the game. We've got, got everything game. you could want. All kinds of stuff uh, going on. So uh, one event of the year not to be missed. Uh, now, again, it all begins at 2 and it runs until... We shut down at 10.30. Okay. Um, so, yeah, get there, get there early. Enjoy the children's activities. Enjoy food. Plan dinner down there. Um, we have, of course, Schmidt Sausage House will be with us. And if you are wanting Schmidt, you know you need to get in line early yes. and make that an element of your day. Absolutely. So, um, come down and do that. We also have to mention, because you could not p- uh, pull this off without uh, a lot of uh, generous sponsor support. Absolutely. Our signature sponsor for the last several years, Premier Bank. They're wonderful community partners. Finley Brewing Company, our official beer of Oktoberfest. Finley Beer Co., one of our distributor um, friends that helps us quite a bit with the event. Ohio Logistics that helps us with that contest stage and the Ohio State game this year. Um, several other in-kind sponsors. Freudenberg helps us with the children's area. Um, as you said, we could not do it without community support. And that includes the volunteers, too. We have over 200 volunteers helping us on Saturday. So a huge thank you to everyone that's participating. Again, Oktoberfest coming up on Saturday, downtown Findlay. We will see you there. Sarah Sisser with the Hancock Historical Museum. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks so much, Chris. The Community and Business Spotlight is a promotional advertisement paid for by the featured sponsor. Well, if I asked you to name the absolute worst disease known to humankind, could the answer be anything but childhood cancer? I mean, if we could eliminate one thing, that would have to be at the top of the list, right? Well, what if I told you then that there is a way to fight childhood cancer with a simple social media post? Northwestern Mutual is reigniting the hashtag Lemon Top Challenge in honor of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month in September. And joining us is Steve Radke, president of the Northwestern Mutual Foundation. Steve, tell us about this cause here. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, as you mentioned, that childhood cancer is such a terrible disease, and a lot of people don't realize that every single day, over a thousand children around the world are diagnosed with cancer. Mm. At Northwestern Mutual, we're trying to change that. For the last decade, we partnered with a great organization called Alex's Lemonade Sand Foundation. And Alex's is one of the nation's leading funders of cutting-edge pediatric cancer research. And so we've come up in honor of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month with this social media challenge, uh, a lemon top challenge, to draw more attention to the, the great work they do in this cause. So how can someone support uh, the, uh, this cause with the Lemon Top Challenge? Yeah, so it's a, a very simple thing to do. Uh, here I actually have a, a lemon in my hand right now, and all you have to do is balance it on the top of your head, <laughs> uh, take a picture of yourself balancing it, uh, and then post it to social media. And if you use the hashtag Lemon Top Challenge and tag Northwestern Mutual and Alice's Lemonade Stand Foundation, 
will donate $10 to Alex's for everyone who does that, up to a half million dollars. It is such a simple thing. If we can make this kind of go viral like uh, some of the uh, past uh, charitable challenges and campaigns, talk a little bit about why, and I know you touched on this earlier, but talk a little bit of why uh, you have chosen Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation as the recipient of this uh, campaign. We partnered with Alex's Showing because they do two things extremely well. The first is they help identify the most impactful research being done literally around the globe and make sure that it's being funded. They funded more than a thousand research projects over their existence. Uh, and we know that that research is the key to enable enabling kids to live longer symptom-free lives. And that's what we're all striving for. The other important thing they do is they help support the families of those who are impacted uh, by cancer. And because you know, it's not always just the sick child, but the entire family uh, has some of that impact. For example, uh, the, the child often has to travel quite a distance from their home uh, to uh, the a medical institution that can provide them the best care, and that travel can be pretty expensive. So Alex's has a, a program that helps support the families cover those expenses of traveling back and forth to their medical treatment. So those are just two examples of the uh, important work that Alex is doing and why we're such uh, supporters of them and why we want to draw more attention to the great work they do through the Lemon Top Challenge. Now, I, I want to uh, underscore the second point there. I mean, there are a lot of organizations that are doing research, and thank God for all of them, but especially that uh, that help with the financial burden because we talked about this uh, before and is true of any cancer diagnosis. There is such a financial burden beyond the treatment and the and the things that you expect when you get a cancer diagnosis. You know uh, that it's going to be expensive, you know, for these things. But then there are always. Uh, these expenses that place an additional burden that families face that they don't expect. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we'll see that uh, uh, one of the parents may have to, to quit their job because of the time that it was involved in getting their, their child the proper care and treatment, and that can, that can be a burden. Yeah, I know Trust Mutual, we're a, a financial planning, financial services, financial security company, and we have advisors all around the country and other things. Our advisors do is help families uh, when they're going through challenging times like this as well. So uh, it's another way that we try to help in this cause. A uh, natural uh, connection there. So again, how do folks uh, support and participate in the Lemon Top Challenge? Again, really simple. Just balance that lemon on their head, <laughs> take a picture of it, post it to social media, use the hashtag Lemon Top Challenge, and tag Northwestern Mutual and Alice's Lemonade Stand Foundation in ten dollars will go to the cause it would be an awful lot of fun to uh, see people's creativity come about uh through this again steve radke is president of northwestern mutual foundation uh where do we get more information on this yep you can go to the northwestern mutual website at northwesternmutual.com again september is childhood cancer awareness month steve thanks very much for taking the time we appreciate it thank you chris this is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. This 
uh, first item in today's broken news uh, has got to be in the running for best broken news story of the year. Um, <laughs> a North Carolina man, uh, a North Carolina man's audacious attempt to fake his own death in order to uh, escape his legal troubles was thwarted apparently because he forgot that he was wearing a court-ordered ankle monitor. (laughs) Okay, here's what happened. This is a story that actually spans multiple states. Uh, Melvin MD, age 41, uh, was uh, facing charges in his native North Carolina. That's where he lives. It doesn't say what the charges were that he was facing. So anyway, he came up with this brilliant plan. He had his son report him missing saying that he had fallen overboard while kayaking in Louisiana. Okay, that was the uh, report. His son called 911, said his uh, dad had gone overboard while kayaking in Louisiana. Immediately, authorities smelled something fishy, suspecting that the incident was a ruse to escape pending charges in North Carolina. The scheme quickly unraveled, (laughs) <laughs> when Mr. MD uh, was stopped, uh, it was pulled over in a traffic stop in Georgia. <laughs> he was pulled over in a traffic stop. Fingerprint analysis confirmed his true identity, concluding the bizarre and ill-fated escape plan. <laughs> He was wearing a court-ordered ankle monitor. If you're wearing an ankle monitor, they can track you and figure out where you are, even across state lines. Um, and again, they use fingerprint analysis just to make sure. Uh, Mr. MD now finds himself facing even more charges. And so did his son for uh, making the uh, false report. He has been extradited back to North Carolina to face the original charges, but more charges are pending now in Louisiana and in uh, Georgia. So, (laughs) File that under the category of sounded like a brilliant idea at the time. There was just one small problem. (laughs) Elsewhere in the uh, broken news this morning, a Michigan woman is fortunately safe, but a daring rescue from an outhouse toilet. State police in Gaylord, Michigan, said a woman got stuck while in an outhouse. Now, keep in mind, she's in an outhouse toilet. She got stuck in an outhouse toilet because she was trying to retrieve the Apple Watch she had dropped in the pit. Uh, Again, it's happened in Gaylord, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, in the UP. In addition to state troopers, first responders from the State Department of Natural Resources and the Otsego County EMS were on the scene. The woman was flushed out after the toilet was removed and a strap was used to lift the woman to safety. State police urge parkgoers not to climb into outhouse toilets. You would think that that would be something you wouldn't have to tell people. <laughs> Don't climb into the outhouse toilet. That that would seem to go without saying, you would think. But, I mean, to retrieve an Apple Watch, of all things. I mean, I know these things are expensive. But, 
Just let, just let the watch go. Just, just let the watch go. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, this from uh, California, where a teenage daredevil find, found himself dangling 730 feet above uh, the ground on the Auburn Forest Hill Bridge. On Sunday, the unnamed thrill seeker used a rope and a harness to swing from the catwalk under the bridge. Again, this sounds like one of those uh, ideas that sounded like a good idea to ta- at the time. This sounds like fun. Let's do. Let's swing from the catwalk under the bridge, seven hundred feet in the air. Unfortunately, the seventeen-year-old kid became stuck, and his friend had to call nine one one. First responders arrived and were able to pull the teen to safety. Uh, He and his accomplice, who was recording the stunt for social media, uh, were cited for trespassing the bridge. I could have had a much worse ending than that. Oh, man. The, uh, what is that the, uh, the, um, Madness of youth or something. You know, it's kids don't think about these things. Um, it's not just kids, apparently. A uh, Louisiana man uh, from Ponchatoula, Louisiana, is now in custody and accused of stealing an amb- ambulance from a local hospital. It amazes me how many times we have these stories in the news. Stole an ambulance from a local hospital. Deputies arrested 28-year-old Jeffrey Armstrong on Interstate 55 As he drove the uh, ambulance near Ponchatoula, Mr. Armstrong told deputies he acquired the ambulance. (laughs) He didn't use the word stole. He told deputies he acquired the ambulance because he was tired of waiting for a ride home from the hospital. Okay. (laughs) The ambulance is just fine. It's been returned to service. So. And uh, finally, in the broken news this morning, a South Florida man is behind. But, you know, this is this is one of those stories. I read just the first line of the story and I knew this is going to be a good one. Here's the first line of the story. A South Florida man is behind bars after allegedly setting fire to a car belonging to his ex-girlfriend, who also happens to be his cousin. You know, know, this is going to be a good story. Um, (laughs) Melvin Cintron now faces charges of second-degree arson and third-degree grand theft in connection with the incident that that unfolded back in April. Uh, Here's what happened. A ring doorbell camera captured a then-unidentified individual pouring gasoline onto the vehicle, uh, a white four-door Jaguar, and then igniting... The blaze set it on fire, poured gasoline into a white four door Jaguar and then set it ablaze. Um, (laughs) It says here the fire was subsequently determined to be intentional. (laughs) I mean, how, how, how do you accidentally dump gasoline inside of a vehicle and then light a match? I mean, that's kind of a no brainer. The fire was subsequently after an investigation. They determined the incident uh, was in- intentional. Yeah. 
Apparently, it took several months to identify the perpetrator, though. Uh, police connected would eventually connected the registered owner of the vehicle to the crime. He was actually the registered owner of the vehicle. Um, but his ex-girlfriend, who also happened to be his cousin, was in possession of the uh, vehicle. Uh, she said that she had been living in fear and I guess with good reason, he is now facing multiple charges and will next appear in court next month. <laughs> I just, so many things about that story just jump out at me. <laughs> Setting fire to a car belonging to his ex-girlfriend, who also happens to be his cousin. And I, after a lengthy investigation, they determined the blaze to be intentional. Yeah. Because you don't just accidentally pour gasoline on a car and then light a match. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so much craziness there. Uh, that is today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. And those stories certainly qualify. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Ever wonder what being a Finley Rotarian is all about? I'm Angela Dabosky, CEO of the United Way of Hancock County. Being a Rotarian offers meaningful connections with community leaders and to what's going on in organizations across Hancock County. To become part of an organization that brings together business, professional leaders to provide community service and advance goodwill, all part of a worldwide service club, contact Findlay Rotary at FindlayRotary.org and click on join. This message provided by WFIN. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Is it easier to graduate from college now than it was a decade ago? There's been a lot of discussion uh, of late. The cost of college and student loan debt and all of that has been one of the dominant stories in the news uh, for the past several years. But a new survey of 2,000 adults, nearly two-thirds believe that it is, in fact, easier to graduate from college. Now, 64% say students have more success. 64% say it's easier to graduate college now than a decade ago. 79% of college graduates think currently enrolled students have access to more resources now than they did and previous uh, classes did in the past. Uh, the average college, that's not to say that the road is without its potholes, as it were, the road to a college degree. The average college student, according to the survey, experiences six major roadblocks on the path to graduation. In fact, 48% admitted that there was a time when they felt they would not graduate. So nearly half had at least had those moments when they figured there's no way that they're going to ever actually get their degree. Nearly half. The top obstacles cited were fin uh, financing their studies, 38%. Um, but that's not the biggest one. I mean, that was one that was common, but not necessarily the biggest one, financing. 43% cited difficulties balancing obligations outside their studies. 36% uh, cited finding effective ways to study as being a challenge, and 26%, and this is you know maybe one of those uh, statistics that demonstrates 
the fact that we've got so many people returning to college later in life to try and get their degree uh, after having started a family. 26% of those in the survey, when they asked about uh, what are some of the roadblocks that could keep you from graduating after you've enrolled, 26% cited being a parent or a caretaker while enrolled in college was one of the big role or one of the big road roadblocks uh, that can keep them from actually graduating, completing their degree. Forty five percent said that they would prefer a hybrid class, hybrid online and in-person classes, remote learning and schedule flexibility. They say could play a significant role in making it easier to graduate and addressing some of these roadblocks. 45% would prefer hybrid classes. 20% would want a college course that is completely online, which I thought was interesting. Um, Online courses, a lot of colleges and universities are really out there pushing their online courses, but only 20% of those in the survey would want a college course that is completely online. Dr. Matt Davis, Bellevue University, says it is important to prioritize flexibility in your learning environment in addition to ensuring that you have access to integrated support, is the way he put it. Online learning can work for both first-time students balancing various other obligations as well as those seeking their next career promotion. 48% of those in the survey noted the increased availability of online options for classes as a factor in easing current students' path to graduation. Some really interesting statistics there about the difficulty of actually attaining a college degree. It's real easy to enroll and start college. It's finishing that has always been the challenge. But again, circling back to where we started, nearly two-thirds of people believe that it is, with all of these resources, easier to graduate from college now than it was a decade ago. And I think that's important. I want to emphasize this. Maybe it kind of gives the the wrong impression. When they say it's easier to graduate from college, it's not because the coursework is easier or the standards have been lowered. Some will actually make that argument. But um, because of all of the other ec- outside uh distractions and challenges um, that have been mitigated with things like online learning, remote learning, and so on, hybrid learning, uh, it's easier to graduate from college now in that respect than it was a decade ago. But you remember the other day we were talking about the fact that it is not too early to get your annual flu shot. Last year, you recall, we got hit early with flu and new COVID strains and RSV all at the same time. So what is the likelihood of a similar triple threat this year? Dr. Emily Volk is president of the College of American Pathologists. And Dr. Volk, let's start with that question. Are we looking at a similar one, two, three punch this year? I think we are, uh, and we've certainly seen hospitalizations increasing steadily since July. Um, and, you know, what we're noticing is about half of the folks uh, being hospitalized um, did not have underlying health conditions. Um, and so this really serves as a stark reminder that, you know, even healthy people can contract uh, COVID-19 and some of these other viruses that are circulating. 
So uh, with all of these different things that are circulating, how important is it to know which virus or infection you have? Does it really matter at the end of the day? It can matter. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, COVID-19, RSV, and uh, flu can have uh, similar symptoms. You know, we do know that sometimes with COVID-19, uh, folks will lose a sense of smell or taste, but that, that isn't a reliable way of, of diagnosing uh, COVID-19. Um, you know, what I would tell you is if you don't feel good uh, and you're not getting any better, take it seriously. And, you know, you may seek out uh, a laboratory test to determine which one of these viruses or even a bacteria might be causing your trouble. Um, it matters to the doctors treating you uh, what is the underlying cause. Uh, so having that information, make sure you get the right treatment. One difference between this year and last is that we now have an RSV vaccine for adults. Of course, we also have new COVID boosters uh, soon to be available as well. Just kind of underlines the uh, importance of staying up to date, educating yourself, getting the facts on the vaccines. So very important. Well, it, it is true uh, that understanding that there are new variances of virus circulating uh, for COVID-19, um, the new booster uh, is FDA authorized and does target uh, the XBB 1.5 variant. Um, so, you know, that's good news. Uh, you get the new booster and you're covered for the next couple of months uh, with uh, the new variant circulating for COVID-19. The other thing about seasonal flu vaccine is it also is designed to, um, to cover you for the kinds of flu variants we anticipate seeing in the next couple of months. Um, you know, I think of a vaccination uh, as a safety blanket. Uh, and as a mom, I want to make sure that my kids also are fully vaccinated, not only for COVID-19 and for flu, but also the childhood vaccines. Um, this is a great way to prevent catastrophic illness. What about other uh, hygiene tips as, as we're coming into cold and flu season? And we mentioned COVID and RSV and all of these uh, other things that can pre, you know, obviously the vaccine's going to be your first line of defense. Doctors will say that. But then there are lots of other things that people should be doing as sort of uh, an added layer of protection. Well, you know, your, your kindergarten teacher had it right when they encourage you to wash your hands often. Yeah. Um, so I can't stress that enough. Uh, good hand hygiene, using hand sanitizer, uh, really is a, it's a simple thing, uh, but sometimes people forget to do it. We touch our faces naturally a lot. If, our face, if, if we're touching our faces with hands that um, have picked up viruses off the of surfaces, we're just uh, apt to infect ourselves. Uh, so... You know, wash your hands and wipe down surfaces pretty frequently. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, wearing a mask while yeah. traveling during uh, the holidays. I, I was, I, I was going to bring that up because, you know, that leads us to the uh, next question. And it's the one that so many people uh, maybe don't want to hear. But what are the recommendations on masking? Well, you know, there's we're not seeing the mask mandates like we were a few years ago. Yeah. But you know, it is an important tool uh, that is simple enough uh, and for most people, not much trouble. 
that, you know, really does reduce the risk of picking up a respiratory virus when you're on a crowded plane. Uh, if you're in public transportation, you find yourself in a, in a crowded party, um, you may want to go ahead and take advantage of that, of that uh, extra protection. What about uh, the at-home tests versus laboratory tests for particularly for covid um is there is there a benefit to the uh, at-home tests versus the laboratory tests uh that that can help you know stave off the circulation of these viruses oh sure so you know the at-home tests are so convenient uh they do offer an advantage in that regard uh, the thing about using uh, an at-home test for really anything, you know, whether it's a pregnancy test or a COVID-19 test, yeah. if you're doing an at-home lab test, take it seriously. You know, um, I would like to uh, just rip the thing open and start swabbing. Uh, and even, even as a physician, I need to take a minute, read those instructions, make sure I understand how that at-home test works. Uh, in order to get the most reliable result from that at-home test. Now, if there's any if there's any question uh, about the test results, uh, say you're still symptom you're symptomatic and you get a negative at-home test, mm-hmm. uh, and you've been exposed to someone who had COVID-19, you may want to go in and get um, a full-on laboratory test. Um, the tests run in the laboratory are more re- accurate. They are more reliable. Um, they aren't as convenient as the at-home tests, uh, but they do have um, that extra reliability and, advantage. And um, the other thing is, um, in a laboratory, you can test for other viruses and other bacteria that right. might be causing symptoms. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask: is the same, is the reverse also true if you're uh, if you're asymptomatic and you test positive, or you're having symptoms but you test negative? Either way, uh, that's really a sign to maybe get into the doctor and see exactly what's going on. Yep. Again, uh, Dr. Emily Volk is president of the College of American Pathologists. As we head into this season where these bugs are going to be circulating once again, where do we get more information? You can go to newsroom.cap.org for reliable uh, information from physicians uh, that covers a lot of the topics we talked about today and then some. Dr. Volk, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And with that, we wrap up our podcast for today with a special thanks to all of our guests for joining us. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Coming up on the program tomorrow, we'll preview week number six of the high school football season. Get another collection of recipes from Kyra's Kitchen, of course. And Senator Sherrod Brown weighs in on the auto workers' strike and the possibility of a government shutdown. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.